A few years ago, a documentary came out about an art world mystery. An old painting had resurfaced in New Orleans, possibly the work of an old great master. But in the art world, it's hard to be sure. There are lots of fakes, and there are also paintings that look like they were made by an artist, but actually end up being made by a student or a workshop taught by the artist in question. That's always a little bit uncertain who made what, but since the art world is a place where obscene amounts of money get thrown around in service of the concept of authenticity, the case of the Salvatore Mundi was especially contentious. When a restorer found it, it was in bad shape and its location called its authenticity into question. Why would a great artwork end up at a New Orleans auction with a seemingly worthless price tag? But there was one thing that convinced curators finally that this painting was the real deal, that it was the lost Leonardo of myth. It was the Salvatore Mundi's resemblance to the Mona Lisa that first led credence to the theory that the long lost artwork was a product of Leonardo da Vinci's artistry, not a fake. The painting garnered a new nickname, one that's in itself very trans, the male Mona Lisa. Because what are some of the earmarks of a true Leonardo da Vinci? It's not necessarily the brushstrokes or the expressions or the figures themselves. It's the overarching gender ambiguity he lends to human faces and bodies. There's been a lot of dialogue about some of da Vinci's most famous paintings in regard to gender. For instance, his infamous Last Supper painting, features a figure on the left side of Jesus with long hair and a blue dress, and with such a striking femininity in her face and her pose that some scholars believe the figure to be Mary Magdalene, which would make the painting a non-canonical take on Jesus's final Seder before being crucified. Unless, as some scholars believe, Leonardo da Vinci had access to the Gnostic Gospels, which were rediscovered sometime in the 40s and are not acknowledged by the church to be real gospels, but possibly were in a different time before they were buried. Others believe this figure is instead a feminine-looking man, his identity unknown but assumed to be the beloved disciple, or the much gayer, the disciple Jesus loved. There's a similar kind of questioning around his most famous work, the Mona Lisa. For centuries, scholars have been asking the question, who was this woman? How did da Vinci know her? Was she a highborn patron of the arts, a miller's wife, or just some random lady? Or was she, perhaps, da Vinci himself? On Twitter and elsewhere, trans folks have taken this delicious theory and run with it, going so far as to propose that the Mona Lisa isn't just any self-portrait. It's a portrait of da Vinci in girl mode, a painting dreamed up of the person he wanted to present as and the life he wanted to live. But even if there's truth to this theory, it might not suggest that da Vinci himself was trans, tantalizing as that might be. Back in the day when queerness was criminalized and carried a stiff legal outcome, as well as social disgrace, it wasn't uncommon for gay men to engage in the language of transness to express their desire to love their male partners openly, the way a cis woman could in their society. I'm sure you've all heard the term invert, the rather quaint 19th century term for queer people. It came from the assumption that straightness was the norm, and this being so, a man who desired another man or a woman who desired another woman must, of necessity, be of an inverted gender. In effect, society would rather see gay men as trans women longing to be in a straight relationship instead of coming to terms with the reality of same-sex desire. For da Vinci, 
beautiful, gender-ambiguous young men were often at the center of his artistic inspiration. After moving from Florence to Milan around 1482, da Vinci met the man who was, by some accounts, his only long-term boyfriend, and his artistic assistant, a beautiful youth named Giacomo, who da Vinci nicknamed Salai, or Devil. They stayed together until da Vinci died, and some believe that this young man provided the visual inspiration for some of his most iconic and most gender-bending works. But why did he leave Florence in the first place? Well, in 1432, the somewhat liberal climate of Florence, Italy, changed as homosexual acts became criminalized and prosecuted by a special task force sexily dubbed the Office of the Night. It remained in effect for 70 years, spanning most of the 15th century, and in that 70 years, over 10,000 men were prosecuted for quote-unquote homosexual acts. In 1476, at the age of 24, da Vinci almost became one of them. He was almost prosecuted, but the person who came forward to accuse him was and remained anonymous, and therefore the case was dropped. But that was far from the last time accusations of queerness would show up. So wouldn't making queer art, especially androgynous art, be considered kind of risky? Well, as always, it's complicated. Da Vinci, like so many artists of his time, was employed by political leaders, such as Duke Ludovico Sforza, who commissioned The Last Supper from da Vinci. But this also meant that da Vinci's livelihood was subject to the politics of the time. For instance, when Sforza fell from power and the French invaded Milan, da Vinci went back to Florence and searched for a patron, cycling through various employers, including Cesare Borgia and the Pope, who was apparently a real asshole and the reason da Vinci left Italy to die in France at the end of his life. He left the Mona Lisa to Giacomo, and the rest is history. For someone so prolific who mastered an incredible diversity of fields from science and anatomy to engineering and construction. It's pretty cool that the thing we remember most from his body of work is a portrait of a woman of unknown origin, someone who might have been conceived out of the very trans desire to see yourself in the world as you'd like to be. Because da Vinci wasn't creating this kind of ambiguity on accident. This was a man who studied the human body obsessively and drew anatomically correct sketches of every part of the body inside and out. The way he saw men and women as possibly not two distinct sexes opposing each other, but two points on an incredibly amorphous spectrum of gender, was on purpose, and somewhat in keeping with the style of the time. But when modern scholars talk about da Vinci's work, it's his treatment of gender that makes him stand out. That's maybe the clearest aspect of his legacy, though I'm sure plenty of art scholars would disagree with me. But for me, the thing that makes art moving isn't technical skill or an obsession with a certain subject. It's the artist's point of view. The greatest artists impress us with their point of view. They show us things previously hidden from sight or in a different light or a different context. They expose truths in abstract or in graphic detail that we'd prefer not to deal with in life. To me, that's why art is beautiful. Then it seems pretty clear and pretty fucking cool that in da Vinci's point of view, men and women weren't two binary genders with no relationship to each other outside of the familial and sexual. They were choices a person could make, aspects a face could take in certain lighting. They were malleable, shifting, completely unfixed aspects of identity that still have people questioning the gender identity of certain figures from his work to this day. When I look at da Vinci's work, I have only one thought, really. 
And it's that aren't we lucky that this person existed and that he saw us so clearly? Or at least saw our way of thinking about gender. His point of view was ours, I think. Maybe it seems grandiose to say that, but it feels true. Once in college, a professor explained to us what, in her opinion, constituted the true test of greatness for a work of art. For her, it wasn't merely the idea of something being read and seen and talked about over the course of centuries. A great artwork was something that still, after hundreds, even thousands of years, created questions in the mind of those taking it in. And the questions we keep asking, in Da Vinci's case, are finally catching up with the way he actually saw the world. The way we see the world. Totally Trans Minisodes is a production of the Totally Trans Podcast Network. You can find us on Twitter at TotallyTransPod or support us on Patreon at patreon.com backslash totallytrans. Totally Trans.